0: Please, man. All right, so
1: after the death of your father, you got on the radio and you said, I'm going to avenge my father's death. I'm going to kill the bastards, the motherfuckers who did this. I'm going to rise up. I'm going to be more dangerous than my father. How big a mistake was that?
0: Well, man, it's perhaps one of the biggest mistakes I ever committed in my life. You know, just let's say that five seconds of threats. He came in 25 years of exile, man, and didn't, didn't stop yet. So uh, I, I learned a lot from those words, you know, from the power of a declaration and how this could really affect your present, your future, and how this can put your life in danger, too. Uh, perhaps I wasn't realizing that I was, you know, the son of Pablo Escobar. Perhaps if, you know, a teenager received the same bad news that his father passed away. Perhaps he could react the same as I did, but uh, not being the son of Pablo Escobar, uh, people won't take that seriously. But you know, I, I didn't realize that what I was doing, what I was saying, what I was thinking were going to affect so much my own destiny. And, and I could tell you that those wars for sure affected my destiny in many, many, many ways but also gave me the opportunity to make the call again and to realize that that wasn't the path for me and that wasn't the future that I wanted to build. So I, I call again to the, the media and I said, I apologize for what I've just said. And I wanna, you know, I wanna make peace and I wanna be committed with peace. And that's what I've been doing for the past 26 years of my life. But of course, uh, people remember me for just, for those threats, for sure.
1: So the Cali cartel, they had a death sentence on you after that. And they were allied with the Castaño brothers, with Don Berna. The Castaño brothers with Los Pepes said they were going to cut you up and your sister up into little pieces and send them to Pablo in a sack. Now, your mother talked to the Cali guys and arranged for you to have a sit down with them to see if they would spur your life. How did it feel to go to that meeting thinking you were never going to come out, possibly alive?
0: Well, imagine yourself being invited to a meeting where you already know and totally positive that you're not going to come out alive. Will you go to that meeting, Sean? I don't know. (laughs) It seems like
1: you didn't have much of a choice.
0: Well, I did, you know, and that's that was the, perhaps the worst part, you know, because uh, of course I have always the choice to be Pablo Escobar 2.0, and sadly I had the know-how, because you know, I was very next to my father, and uh, I, I was watching how he handled all, all, all of these things, at the same time I was totally afraid of what was going to happen to me, and I have to say that it was thanks to my father's enemies' advices that I, you know, I decided to go to that meeting because at the beginning, when I was invited, let's say, uh, they one of them they were, you know, treating me bad, you know, insulting me, threatening me all the time, uh, but suddenly, you know, everybody calmed down and get outside of the, of the prison that I was visiting when I received the message, and one of the guys approached to me and they said hey, look, man, uh, you don't realize that you are already dead and that the only chance uh, to get out alive is to be sharp on that meeting. So be there because that's the only way out. Uh, And it makes a lot of sense to me, you know. uh, So I wrote my own will when I was 16 and I decided to go to face death, you know, uh, because I was also tired of running away from the scenes that I wasn't responsible for, so for me, it was also uh, what a, what an adventure you know what a a challenge that I had to face in front of me but you know uh, thanks to that meeting, you know I realized that I could have a second chance the the right to to own and to develop the, you know the second chance of being another human being, a different one and to start over so I took that opportunity and I thank uh, my father's enemies for allowing me to stay alive and I honor that opportunity. You know, I became uh, an architect, uh, an industrial designer, a writer, and I'm just trying to use my father's story in the most responsible way so we could, you know, move forward and, and learn from it.
1: So you tried to get out of the country multiple times. And there was one time where you were at the airport and you guys were queuing up to get on the airplane and then you got searched and they, they made you miss the airplane and then the Los Pepes guys showed up. How did you manage to save your family in that situation?
0: Well, man, I felt, you know, um, I remember that when I had the opportunity to escape from that situation, uh, imagine an international airport uh, that was uh, in control of terrorists. And the authorities, even instead of stopping them, were helping them. You know, it's a very awkward situation. And you are just a single family. And I was 16. And my little sister, you know, she has like 10, 11 years, something like that. And I was surrounded by women of my family members. Uh, I don't know how it came up to my mind that the only way out was to rent a helicopter, you know so uh, i i found somebody who offered me help in front of a lot of policemen who wanted me dead of course and he said uh, that he could get me an office and a telephone Uh, so i don't know just in a minute uh, i realized that the only way out was just to rent a helicopter and escape from all of them because you know we had no bodyguards at that time. Nobody could give us any protection. My father was losing every, you know, the control of the country. He wasn't the powerful man uh, that everyone knew and expected to be in that time. So we were truly surrounded. And I don't know, it's it's a miracle that I can speak with you today, man, because I should have died that day exactly, as uh, many other opportunities happened to me too. But uh, I, I remember that when I managed to escape, you know, the same day I was uh, with my father and he congratulated me just because, you know, how I handled the situation. He couldn't, you know, even believe it. How could I, you know, but I said to him, you know, I, I learned from you, you know, you're a good man in terms of how to escape from danger and authorities. And, and I just did the same, you know, but um, we were, Totally surrounded, more than a hundred policemen and more than fifty people with guns uh, and with, you know, their face cover. You couldn't not see and realize if they were bandits or, you know, or uh, agents. You couldn't figure it out who they were, but for sure they had no good intentions uh, of being there and. It, it, it didn't happen in the middle of the night, man. it was just like uh, during the morning, you know, in front of thousands of people and you know and airline employees, many, many people there who saw and witnessed all of this and uh, it was you know the the terror was taking control of the country, and there was two sides of terror, my father's sides and the other sides, you know and, uh, and it was a very awkward situation, but finally, Uh, God helped us and we could manage to to escape from there, but it was quite a challenge for sure
1: Going back to an earlier year then a pivotal moment in Pablo's career was the assassination of Lara Bonilla Things really changed after that. So you guys had to leave the country in a hurry Your mother was pregnant. How did it feel to be on that journey to Panama?
0: Well man um I remember that we we were forced to take a helicopter that um from my father, and um, it's like suddenly all your life as you know it changed without notice and uh, and you know I was going to school every single day, having my family my home as I knew it since I was very 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 young so suddenly uh, I was forced to change uh, in our home, and we went to a farm where we took the uh, the helicopter and we went to Panama. And we have to dress like if we were tourists, uh, you know, uh, next to some near beach, they were, it was there. So when the police stopped us, uh, they thought that we were just, you know, diving and doing something like that. But... Uh, it was thanks to the General Noriega who was helping my father and allowing him and his organization to stay there. But he was working also like a double agent because at the same time he was a CIA agent. So it was a, a very awkward and difficult moment. And and it, that's exactly the point in my life where I, re, where I realized who my father was, you know, because in the meantime, Uh, I was just joining my father for his political campaigns, and everybody was saying, Paulo, thank you very much. You're helping a lot of people. So I was just hearing a lot of good things about my father, but this was the start. This was the beginning when I realized uh, to know my father even better. And he approached me, and he said, look, son, I want you to know what I do, and I am a bandit, and this is what I do for a living, so... Since that uh, moment, he started sharing with me the news and we, we, we saw the, the, the TV news, we read the newspaper together and he didn't have any problem to recognize his responsibility for most of the news that we were reading. So it was uh, a moment that allowed me also to know better who my father was. Uh, and, and I know that some people, they say that I, I don't know anything about my father, but they don't know my relationship with him and how direct and honest and uh, he was with me, you know, because I don't know many fathers who could approach to their own to their own sons and say, hey, I killed this guy and I, I am responsible for this cocaine or not. You know, it's, uh, I don't know many guys who could do that. Now that I am a father, I, I think, how should I... Tell my son if I commit a crime, you know, did I, will will I talk to him in a, in the same way that my father did it? I don't know, man. I, I think it's it's very very hard. But I believe that also my father was just trying to be my father and being honest with me was um, a way of showing me respect. I I believe.
1: Who do you believe trafficked the most drugs in the 1980s, your father or George H.W. Bush and the CIA? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, you, did it, you, you did your homework, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really don't know who, who handled more, <laughs> but uh, it's difficult to, to count the, how many kilos uh, did everyone uh, deliver in those times. But uh, you remember, you know, the... Um, there was um, a big fight you know, against the socialism in Central America during the 80s. So the CIA was using the drug trafficking business and also they were like uh, in the middle of exchange between drugs and guns. So they will support the right wing groups so they could kill all the lefties. So that's let's say the, the, the excuse to to be part of the drug uh, trafficking business, to finance all these wars against the lefties in uh, in Central America in those times. And of course, my father uh, was part of it. And as I publish in my second book, that is, is not being translated in English yet, uh, I can imagine why. Um, <laughs> the thing is that, uh, <laughs> We should we, we take this uh, in a relaxed way, but it's a, a hard story to tell. Uh, um, you know, my father was, uh, and there's pictures that Barry Seal, the CIA agent, took from an airplane that my father actually bought from the CIA. And he was sending drugs to the United States uh, with those kind of planes. But of course, the CIA put a hidden camera inside of it and took several pictures of my father. And some people of the Nicaraguan government, and even another partner of my father called the Mexican, aka the Mexican, uh, Gonzalo Rodriguez Gacha. And what it's interesting for me about those pictures is that you can see the right wing, the left the left wing, the drug dealers, the army, the government, everybody together, you know, just after the money. It's like there's no doesn't matter who believes in the right-wing's ideas or the left-wing, whatever. It's just only one uh, one things that bring everybody together, and it's money. You know, and that's you know, I, I feel a little bit disappointed because I thought that you know their ideas were stronger than that, but you know, at the end, money is like uh, the uh, whatever is the only thing that matters. Sadly.
1: Your father said that those photos were fake because he's never carries the drugs himself. Are you saying that the photos were real?
0: Well, the photos are real. And he said that he never carried the, the drugs into the plane But because the soldiers were doing that part of the job, you know. Okay. So he wasn't lying. It was okay. the soldiers who were helping him.
1: <laughs> so you've met a lot of the victims of people who were assassinated. I've written a book about Barry Seale. Did you meet Barry Seal's son?
0: Yes, actually, we are very close friends, and I'm happy to say that, man. And I, I, I should say that Aaron Seale, his son, he teaches me perhaps one of the most important lessons for me in terms of reconciliation and forgiveness. And he I thought that I knew something about asking forgiveness and reconcile with people. But, you know, this guy is truly amazing because the first message that I received from from him was he was asking me to forgive his own father just because he was willing to talk about my own father against him in a U.S. court. So he asked me to forgive his own father, even when my father was the one who killed his own his own guys, you know, his own father. So for me, it was like very hard to receive and to process that message because um, I wasn't expecting um, so much kindness. And, you know, I, I don't know even how to describe this. His heart, man, because he's... And also his, um, his mother, and actually they both contact the guys who, who, uh, who pulled the trigger and killed his dad and uh, husband in that time, and they got in contact uh, in those times, and they said, we forgive you, we have nothing against you, it's uh, God's will, and we know, that's, that's their words, and they said, we know that our father took decisions in life that, you know, uh, bring him a lot of problems, and, and it was thanks to his own decisions that this had this um, unhappy ending, for sure. So that that really inspired me, you know, to continue working with my father's victims, and and so far, and thank God, and that today I have met like 150 families. Uh, all of them suffer, you know, um, kidnaps and murder, many many crimes committed against them, and and thank God, the the success rate of those conversations at 100%. So that's that keep me going in that path of forgiveness and peace, man.
1: That's really powerful. What motivated you to meet the victims' family members in the first place?
0: Well, man, I you know, it's like uh, I, I I felt like silence will kill me. You know, if I stay in total silence for life, that will kill me in a way, and I couldn't stand that, man. So I took a decision, I I told this to my mother, and I said to her, look, I don't know what I'm going to do, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I need, I feel the need to ask for forgiveness, even if I didn't commit any crime against them. But I believe that somebody has to take responsibility for this, and uh, and nobody's doing it, and who else is going to do it, you know? And, I got her support and my sisters too. And after that, you know, I start realizing that perhaps the best way to approach to them was telling my own story through a documentary that was called Scenes of My Father. And, and suddenly during the year 2009, we finally published the documentary. So that gave us the perfect opportunity and excuse to approach to those families. And that encouraged me also to write a letter to them And after that, you know, I could uh, have a meeting in Colombia after 14 years of not being able to come back to my own country. And and when I took the decision to come back, you know, I was um, feeling a lot of uh, fear because when I when I left my country, they said to me, "If you ever come back, we will kill you." That's it. And so I, I promised not to come back again ever. So I was not keeping that promise, and I was facing a lot of danger. But for me, I thought, and I was totally sure that it was more important to face that danger, but because I was seeking forgiveness and reconciliation with my father's victims, so there was nothing else more important than that.
1: Well, fantastic work that you're doing there. Another life and death situation was when the Cali cartel bombed a house. Your dad had left in the morning, and the roof was off you guys were looking at the sky and the way your mother described it that you, you basically a botero statue had saved your life because you were pinned down by a, a slab what
0: what happened next well man uh, you know nobody ever in that time in colombia have heard you know a carbon explosion nobody so when we were in the middle we were totally confused i cannot tell you that i heard the bomb sound no i i heard nothing i just felt that i couldn't breathe because you know the the weight of the ceiling was just you know uh, against me and i was in bed next to my mother she managed uh, to escape and thanks to her strength and, and i think thanks for the love and the adrenaline that she felt in that moment she saved my life and um I thought that there was an earthquake man I never expected a bomb never in my life you know I, I was just you know you can hear a lot of shootings in Colombia but not bombs it, it didn't happen at that time so we thought that it was an earthquake and I thought that we were trapped in the basement because the all the building fell I don't know I was just imagining things I couldn't see anything there was a lot of dust and uh, and glasses everywhere everything was destroyed it's uh, quite a surreal image because when you go to bed you know what's the last thing you look you know you look your own ceiling and suddenly somebody took it out and now you just get up from bed and you see the sky what happened here man it's like uh, another miracle and so this is the kind of stories that I took from my own experience and my own life to say that I should show a lot of respect, not only to my own life, but also to, to the rest of the lives that were affected by all of this violence. So uh, it was quite an experience, another miracle in my life. I have the pictures and I am willing to, to show uh, with the public and with you some of them because only when you can see them you will see that how can you you know still be alive after um suffering that kind of situation so it was it was amazing to to survive and to you know i I remember that i walk um it was we were in the in a very high floor but we we, used, we need to use the stairs and the stairs were full of you know broken glasses and and I wasn't wearing any shoes. And, and, and I cannot show you a single scar, man. And, you know, I, nothing, actually, nothing happened to me. Not even to my mother, not even to my little sister. So um, there's no other way to call this but as a miracle.
1: I'm curious. I've often wondered why Pablo didn't bomb the houses of the families of the Cali cartel, because Gilberto called him the next day and he realized it was Cali. Why did he not retaliate right away and, and bomb their family's houses?
0: Well, it's, my father was a man of his, of his word, and, um, and he made a promise to his own enemies that uh, the war was going to be against them, but not against their families. And even if they, they attacked his own family, he was willing to respect that. And he many times told me, I know where, this, where their sons live, I know their relatives, I know all the others, but I'm not going to hurt them because they made this promise. And it's another way to keep you safe. But, you know, they never respect that condition. The only one who was still respecting that condition was my father, because they do attack us many times. They were hiring policemen to kidnap us and uh, to make us a lot of harm. Even the army, there was a lot of corruption, you know. The difference between my father and the Cali cartel, let's say it's my father, my father was willing to take control of the country, uh, fighting against the institutions, and the Cali cartel was willing to do the same, but buying the, the institutions. That's the big difference, let's say. They have a more uh, businessman approach uh, for that uh, kind of intentions that my father, my father was more like a warrior in that, if you can call him like that.
1: And Manuela, she injured her ear in the explosion. And having read so much about Manuela when she was a kid and your, your dad playing with you guys, I often wonder now, how, how is your sister doing now?
0: Well, she's well. Actually, you know, that's part of the myth. You know, my, my little sister, thank God, she didn't suffer anything about her ear. Oh, really? Actually, yeah. That's just, just part of the gossips, you know, that you can hear in the media. And there, there are a lot of them. And my, my little sister is good. She's, she's handling well, His, her own life. So, but I know that she uh, decided not to be so public as I do uh, because she's, I don't know, we respect her decision. And she also support us uh, with, with everything that we are doing as a family, but we can understand her that, you know, she was a, a little girl when all this happened has different memories and experiences, even if we suffered the same ones, of course she was even younger, so she got more affected uh, for sure. but um, at the same time I, I was the one who got you know affected in one of, uh, in my two years, let's say. but I didn't realize this until um, recently because I was just hearing a noise in, inside of me. I didn 't know what was going on. And the noise stayed there like for five days. So I went to see the doctor and I, I, know, I want to know what's going on, what happened. So they made me some tests and they realized that I lost uh, 50% of my hearing capacity in one of my ears and 60% in the other one. So I asked the doctor, but, you know, I can hear you per- perfectly well and I'm not complaining that I cannot hear. So he explained to me that there are some frequencies that you can hear and that, And so he told me, I hope you're not planning to play the violin because you will not be able to do it. But uh, so I tell this guy, look, as long as I can hear you, for me, it's fine. So perhaps I can hear some music and I can lose some parts of it.
1: Do you think that injury came from the bombing of the house or from other situations?
0: For me, it was sure that it was, you know, it was the only time in my life that I was, you know, exposed to that uh, kind of explosion and uh, just to remember uh one kilometer away and uh, from the side uh, from the exact place of the explosion all the all the glasses of the city all the windows were, were broken just because of the explosion so imagine if you are exactly in the middle with that happens wow then, you know it's um, i wonder how you know how i can still hear your well man
1: <laughs> what do you say to all these young men who watch narcos and want to be like your father
0: well man i i should say that uh, sadly they are not telling the truth about how we live that experience and uh, they are not being accurate they are not respecting my father's story my country's story and and they are just glorifying him they made uh, a great product in terms of entertainment that has been very successful. Nobody can deny that. But also, it's uh, not educating well the, the, the youngest audience because they truly believe that everything they saw in Narcos is absolutely true. And as you, tell me, as you told me in the beginning, you know, I've been receiving uh, hundreds and thousands of messages every single day through the social media. And most of them, they say, it's so cool. I just watch Narcos and I want to be like your dad. Like, you know, it's just like, hey, man, this is not Superman. I and mean, this is a different story. And if you truly know, want to know the story, please come and join me and read my books or just be present at one of my lectures. And, and I will tell you the truth because, you know, I had the chance to be even somebody worse and dangerous than my father. But I didn't take that path because I was truly aware of the consequences. And um, I received great feedback from my books. You know, the readers, the youngest readers, they sent me letters and they said <laughs> that they were willing to be like my father, but only they stopped thinking like that after they had the opportunity to approach to my story, to my books. So that's why I keep... Um, promoting my books because uh, I know that uh, finally I handle to deliver a message that is totally responsible, that is not encouraging others to follow my father's examples in life, and that it's helping a lot of people to be aware of the consequences of trying to be involved in a business and in a life. You know, my, ba- my father is being portrayed like he's a very su- successful man. And I don't think, you know, even he, if he made so much money, but what's the point, you know, what's, I don't know, what's a um, success for you in life? Uh, I think that's a success, at least for me, it's something that you can truly enjoy during all time. But if you can't, what's the purpose of having, you know, tons of money, but you cannot enjoy any single dollar you, and you are starving, but you, instead of, you know, you are starving and at the same time you have $4 million, $4 million in cash in front of you and you cannot buy it, just a single piece of bread with that money. So what's the point of, you know, having all of those um, assets? It's not, it's not a good way to do it. And, uh, and I tell those guys and I invite them and I said to them, look, if you feel talented enough to be a drug dealer, with half of your talent, you can be a very successful man in life and you, have, and you will have your freedom and your family to enjoy that.
1: Yeah, it ends in the prison, police and death. That's what I tell the kids in this country. Yeah. So as, as a kid for you then, what was it like growing up with hitmen around the house? I'm thinking of characters like Popeye, Earring, El Chapo, Mugre. These guys were babysitting you, playing games. What was that like?
0: Well, they were they were truly, as I call them, my killer knives. You know, it's like uh, it's. Uh, it w- I didn't have any any friends. You know, they were my friends. I grew up with most of them, and not with Popo because he he was being part of the cartel, but later on, not from the beginning. But I know that he he talked much uh, more than he knew. That's that's the reality, but. Uh, It was a very awkward situation, imagine. I was just a kid surrounded by bodyguards, all of them consuming cocaine, marijuana, with guns in their hands, and not the best examples you would want to have for your kid. Uh, But that was the life that I was living, and of course, I didn't have an option. It was my place of birth. That's it, you know. You can choose your friends, but your family, uh, that's something... at least, as far as we know, we cannot do
1: with the assassination of presidential candidate Galan, there was a chart drawn up by the cops, and they had like Pablo and Gatcha at the top saying, "These are the guys responsible, but General Maza is in prison. Santo is in prison, and Maza was the you know equivalent to the head of the FBI. Santo was the politician the the liberal candidate. How did the people who the public thought were the good guys end up in prison for the murder they said your dad did?
0: Well, that's, you know, it's a a very complex case, you know, because uh, a lot of people, of course, the authorities at the beginning, it was easy for them. You know, everything that happened in Colombia, they just, you know, accused my father of being responsible of. But, uh, and many times, you know, it was next to my father and I, I used to say to him, hey, why don't you defend yourself? Why don't you say the truth? And, uh, and he said, it will cost me another war against this family, the Castaño family or, or the other family, just to defend myself. So it's better to keep it that way. And, and I also understood that my father was taking the the power that was given to him just by the media so that will make him look like even a more dangerous person and he was using that in his own favor to force the government to do whatever he wanted and also the politicians and but of course in the middle there's a lot of corruption uh, i know that general massa was convicted for the for the for this criminal act against luis carlos galán the presidential candidate And also, uh, who you call Santos is Santo Fimio, Alberto Santo Fimio, another politician. I wrote in my first book, you know, about about a short line about Santo Fimio. And not, um, I should say, I don't like this guy and I I don't need to be his lawyer. Uh, He he had his own lawyer. But, uh, you know, I don't believe everything that I saw... uh, that everything that comes from the Colombian justice and from the Latin American justice and from many other countries, you have to be very careful of of what you read because they said that uh, he encouraged my father to kill Luis Carlos Galán. And let me tell you one thing, my father was a man who took his own decisions. He never asked for anyone's permission or approval. You know, he just wanted Galán dead and Galán was dead. You know, one of his friends of my father's friends, ask him, hey, Pablo, what are you going to do? Because you know Galán is going to be the next president of Colombia. Um, and so my father answered to, the, to this, to his friend, a dead man can't be a president. You know, so he was taking control of Colombia. He was the man taking decisions. He was also uh, dictating the, the decrees Published by the by Gaviria's government, and let me tell you, there's a lot of decrees 303, um, 2747, many many dec- government decrees that were published because my father was the one telling to the government what to say in his own favor and how this will be made like a like a, um, a tailor-made dress for him. You know, it's like a, just he could present. Uh, to the authorities, surrender to them. Uh, it was politically correct. You know, it was shown to the press, Pablo Escobar surrenders to the government, but it was exactly the opposite. You know, that's, that was how it was presented to the media. But the truth it was that Colombia was surrendering to Pablo Escobar. That was the big difference. And of course, um, you know, the, the, the details of the crime, I, I, I handle to talk a lot of, about this in my books. Uh, and I understand that it's difficult to understand how the ones who were supposed to be the good guys, finally, they, they, they got involved into this. But there are a lot of side stories that relate them to Galán. Uh, let, let's say something, you know uh i know that general general massa uh, didn't want galan to be the president because the day that galan will arrive to the presidency the first guy who will be kicked kick out of the government and the power was going to be general massa so you know and of course he said i am the most uh i was one of the the biggest enemies against Pablo Escobar, how should I help him, etc. But there was another, a lot of, uh, you know, the Castaño brothers, the Castaño brothers, they had a lot of power and they, they make, uh, with the Mexican, Gonzalo Rodriguez Gacha, they do a lot of uh, the operation that finally got Galán killed. So there's a lot of stories, it's a very complex story because a lot of people is like, a, in, in the middle and it's difficult to understand, but, you know, it's, um, it's very interesting to, to bring the puzzle and all the pieces together. So, so we can rebuild the story and the image of what really happened.
1: Was Maza working for Cali?
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, my father used to say that many, many times, of course, uh, Maza denies that, but, you know, I've been, uh, Talking with William Rodriguez Abadia, the son of the Cali Cartel, the son of Miguel Rodriguez, one of the bosses. And of course, you know, they own the country, truly own the country. The Supreme Court, the, the district attorney office, the government, you know, the policemen, the militaries, they truly were the owners of Colombia. As I told you from the beginning, they were trying to, you know, to um, infiltrate. All the Colombian institutions, thanks to corruption, and they did it very, very well. And, of course, my father was fighting against that, and, and he was just shooting everyone. So, of course, I thought that the Cali cartel was going to be, was going to succeed, you know, uh, for many, many years, but they just last for, let's say, two years after my father died,
1: you know. Do you think Popeye exaggerated Santos' role in the Galan assassination for his own benefit, so he could
0: get out of prison? Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, this guy lied a lot, man, a lot. He was, you know, it's uh, he was a bandit, you know, and bandits do things for money, and just, you know, he passed away, and I, I would like to leave him rest in peace, but uh, I know bandits. I grew up between all of them. I know them, how they think, how they act, how they, how they behave. And when when this kind of bandits without uh, loyalty, they will do whatever it takes to have more money and they will like against you, against anyone you could ask if you gave them money. And so he was given information to the Colombian authorities about the activities of Medellin cartel from the year 1984, but he was part of the cartel only until 1988. Hmm. So how could you trust a guy like him?
1: So out of all of the people who worked for your father, who was the most loyal?
0: Well... uh, I think that me, I remember John jairo John Arias Arias tancon Pinina, perhaps he was one of Penina. the most loyal yeah. men that he had and uh, and even the most dangerous too even he he dared to say one day that once uh, the authorities or the enemies got him, uh, Pablo was going to lose the war and that was exact, exactly what started to happen because. Pinina was the guy in the streets, you know, doing all the other things for him. And there was another guy, um, but he was more like a friend. It was my uh, my uncle, Mario and now, from my mother's side. And uh, they were truly good, good friends. And my father was paying a lot of attention to Mario's advices because perhaps he was the only one who wasn't applauding for his violence, and etc. So... I think that the most important man in my father's life in terms of, you know, his operations, uh, let's say from the military part was Pinina, for sure. And from the friends part, from the good advice and from uh, to be uh, to trying to be a wiser man was uh, Mario now, my uncle.